I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Next up for me, Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. I just love this whole series. Lucy Maud Montgomery. I've read this like four times now. Like, Audiobook? Yeah. I've physically read it once and I've listened to it many times. It's just it's so funny, wholesome. These are the stories that I can hear over and over and over and enjoy it every time. I just like how she writes. And the first one, Anne of Green Gables is probably the best but Anne of Avonlea uh Anne of the Island uh they're all good um I think I got I always get a little bit less interested as I go along in the series but I listened to this one with Jess as well this is something we we listen to books together all the time really enjoyed it so good um my next book was Dark Matter by Blake Crouch anyone heard of it um so i was going for a long drive and i asked someone for like what's a book that you couldn't put down because i just wanted a good story and so he was like oh this is the book that i like read in like a couple settings so i downloaded it and i fully understand why it was read in a couple settings because it was a very gripping book and very uh an original take on like multiverse books like a, a cool new take really fun story but I realized reading this that I've read so many classics in my life that have like survived for a reason or books or if it was new, it was recommended by so many people that I kind of just thought there was like a standard for like how well-written books had to be. And it was like, this is a New York Times bestseller and it was written really badly. Like it was like, again, it, it's understandable. Wow. Well, it, it it's like a, a captivating novel. I understand why a lot of people loved it and I genuinely did enjoy it, but it was like, your characters are super one-dimensional. They're just way overuse of adjectives. That was where I really realized like, oh yeah, you should communicate. It was just literally just badly written. I didn't even know really that there were badly written books that weren't sort of niche things. I also discovered this by, I, I didn't finish this book, but sort of started into The Firm by John Grisham because I was just curious about that. I, it was referenced, yeah. I, I, not in a positive or a negative light, but just referenced once or twice in, in on writing. And it was like, yeah, especially the writing about women. Like the men were bad too, but but the women especially were just these really one-dimensional kind of male fantasy sort of thing. And I just, ugh, it was bad. So, yeah, don't read it. Okay. It's it's not it's not. It, it, there's just better books out there. It's great. I just feel like there are books that have a great story and are well written. Yeah. So why settle for one that only has one? But it was I did enjoy it a lot. Yeah. All right, my next book is the is the Gaskell book that I love to have on its own, um, Wives and Daughters. Um, this was phenomenal. So I read North and South, and I said, Sarah, that was incredible. I can't believe I have never read anything by this author before. And she said, just wait till you read Wives and Daughters. It's better. And I was like, hang on. Like, how much better? I read it. Um, she never finished it. Uh, she died. <laughs> um, We've so got a Benjamin Franklin situation going me, on over here. <laughs> set me up for a disappointment there. Um, <laughs> Thanks for telling me that before I killed you. Like, just super. It was another uh, situation. <laughs> <laughs> and the real wife all along was the dot, 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 dot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's still like a 700 page book. Oh my goodness. So it, it is a beast, um, and it is breathtaking. 
Um, it is so, so well written. Um, yeah. With no ending? So she... <laughs> yeah, no no formally written ending. She did tell like her like friends and family what she was planning to do at the ending. So like you have like the sort of the appendix that people have put on there where it's like, this is what she said she was doing. And we know... So based, it's canon. It's, it's almost... She almost reaches the end. Okay. Like you're in the wrap up basically <laughs> moments when it's like, and she's gone. But... But so you do have like it's like okay so obviously this is what happens and these two people end up together and this is what happens over here uh, and and this is confirmed by like her her family was like yeah that's what she was all hyped up to do but she never got around to it wow. um, but it's an incredible book uh, there was a someone commented on it who was one of her contemporaries um, so there's the main character Molly Gibson um, and oh there's just so many characters who are incredible incredible people um, but. One of them is her stepsister, um, who she meets when they are teenagers, uh, named Cynthia Fitzpatrick. And Cynthia Fitzpatrick, obviously not the main character, is remarkable. You, I ended up like obsessed with this Cynthia Fitzpatrick character as the story progressed. And this person who was uh, writing about it at the time described Cynthia Fitzpatrick as being one of the most difficult characters ever attempted. I mean, I just thought that was such an interesting way of framing because she is such a difficult character. Like the idea of trying to write that level of complexity into a human being mm. um, is really, really hard for me to get my head around. I don't want to like, give spoilers, but yeah. she is just remarkable. And the idea of like, yeah, like she shot really high with trying to create this character. Um, she's got this incredibly toxic relationship with her mom, who's Molly Gibson's stepmother. Um, and the way that toxicity plays out through their relationship so that you almost end up with Cynthia having this bizarre power dynamic that she holds over her mother, even though her mother has been negligent and borderline abusive for a long time. It's really fascinating. Um, and again, just like, it's almost, and some of you guys might think this is hyperbole. For me, it almost got close to that level of making you think about and understand people more deeply that you experience in something like East of Eden. Mm. Like it uh-huh. is really profound. That's what I'm, I'm, you're you're yeah. talking about it. Like it's the way you're talking about it, it's the way we all talk about East of Eden. Right. Like, it's nowhere near as hard a book from a like that you don't have this psychosexual mad person like you do in East of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't have any of those kind of really weird dark dynamics to it it's it's a much more family friendly context that's okay I, the, the, the darkness isn't what attracted me to me no of course i think not. it was yeah. useful in the storytelling plot but it wasn't like this is why it's great yeah, but if you want to read a book that makes you makes you find yourself diagnosing one of the characters give this a go i'm stoked I'm bumping this to the near top of Man, my reading this list. Is, this is what I love about this podcast is I would have I've never heard of this author, I've never, and yet we've got a read and we'll, we'll read it and we'll get back to it. So yeah. it's kind of fun too because I think people who have been following the podcast and kind of are jotting down some of the same clear recos that we are, are probably going to read it and maybe hear our reactions in 10 cents and maybe go like, oh yeah, I read it too this summer. And it was, it was you know, I hope that happens at least. Um Something's Not Right by Wade Mullen. Uh, and Owen, I know you had some thoughts on this. Um, it's basically a it's a book on spiritual abuse and and leadership abuse, especially in the church contexts. 
Um, but specifically, it's kind of as an institutional abuse slant to it. And this kind of will start a kick of me reading a lot more books on abuse, um, or at least I've got a few more on here. And just trying to understand dynamics of abuse, institutional abuse, things like that. I found it, I think, a helpful book. I'll say what I like about it. I think Owen has some really good qualifiers. It, it was a book that basically gave you kind of a blueprint to look at situations and say, here's what institutional abuse might look like. Here are some of the tactics abusers use, especially in ways that are not so open, clear cut, like they hit them. You know what I mean? But like manipulative tactics, things like that. Also, he has a really helpful section on what constitutes a good apology. Like what actually is the bread and butter and the, the skeleton of a really good apology. And here's what it means when someone doesn't give you a real apology. And in fact, an apology only designed to further abuse. And and also, he had one point that I really liked that where he said, I think it was in this book. Oh, and you can double back me on this if, if it's true. He said, to not side with someone who's being abused is the de facto and easy... Sorry, just to decide with the... Inst to, sorry, rephrase to side with the institution is the easiest and de facto position. So to do nothing is to side with the institution. And that might not be a bad thing to do, but at least know that that is, that is the, the passive option is always to side with whatever the institution is. It takes active work to side with someone who is being abused or victimized in some instance. There are caveats with that, right? Because you don't you want to be careful, but it is interesting to go like, ah, oh, well, I'm just going to not involve myself then you are, in a sense, in certain situations, casting a vote with the, whatever institution it is. Owen's got thoughts, which we, we talked about a little bit before, but it, it was a good book as far as I'm concerned. Yep, send it. Uh, yeah, and I would I would actually, I think Jacob and I probably would agree on all the, the, the pros on this book. Um, I like the things that you're referring to. Um, the, the chapter on apologies, actually, uh, I hadn't mentioned that in our earlier conversation, but yeah, that is a really good chapter. Um, is is talking about like when the, and you're right, it, it does it is always talking about institutions, and that's the area in which he had experienced abuse himself, I guess. Um, but it's not explicitly just for that. Yeah. He's talking about abuse much more broadly. Um, although again, like you say, he he's, he leans that way, so it doesn't narrow it down. Um, but how what what an appropriate response is when an institution is like, yep, yeah, we we dropped the ball, we behaved badly, we abused the different ways that they can manifest their apology or their acknowledgement of that badly was really helpful information. Um, if only for like, my goodness, if I found myself involved in an institution, like on a board and re realized that in some way we had facilitated abuse, mm -hmm. I would, as someone who would want to be sincere and do the right thing in that moment, I'd be like, this is the book to read. Yeah. You know, in that moment you found yourself somehow siding with an abuser and you <clears throat> want to figure out how to move forward with the best possible integrity. Yeah try this book out because um, it'll, it'll help you avoid some pitfalls that you would, you know, regret. Uh, my, I guess my only, I guess my, my primary reservation, and I don't want to express maybe all my, my more private reservations about it, but one of them would be that it is set up almost as a self-diagnostic tool in some sense. Yeah. It, the title itself is Something's Not Right, and he starts out by saying like, hey, you know, maybe you don't know if you're being abused or not. And, you know, like, do you, do you question that? And maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. Is the situation you're in just hard but legitimate? Or is the situation you're in legitimately abusive and you're a victim? And 
based on and that's that's legitimate right there can be people who are gaslit or or just confused they don't know if what they're experiencing is appropriate or not but with that premise the book goes on to have some vagaries to it that i think could make it substantially unhelpful mm-hmm. for someone who is engaged in that sort of self-diagnostic space where you're like oh you know he talks about like for instance an abuser will often do this thing and he's talking about an incredibly ubiquitous and i would say often innocent behavior mm-hmm. but yeah yeah you're right like he's and he's talked about how he's combed over like over a thousand different cases of you know verified abuse and stuff like this um and you're right chances are that's present in a lot of those but it's also present in a lot of people who aren't abusing so he'll be like an abuser will be very friendly to you and kind to you and and, and do favors for you yeah. and then they'll they'll turn around and they'll ask you for something it might not seem like a big thing i'm like bro that's just relationships like i don't ask a stranger to help me move right like i ask someone who i've developed a rapport with to help me move mm-hmm. right so at that point someone who's like using this self-diagnostically be like okay that's a pattern i see a pattern here you you were nice to me and now you want me to help you out with something right this is abuse right and so that is the only real caveat is as a self-diagnostic tool it has weirdly broad gray spaces that could lead to confusion yeah and and possibly unhelpful conclusions for people but again i i do think that there's some value to the book so yeah it's i feel like the author would be horrified with how to win friends and influence people you know what i mean like they'd just be like <gasps> these are all the tactics of the abuser and and they're not always wrong cuz yeah those actually can be if if cuz i think people the type of abuser one type of abuser is one who is intentionally abusive they would use a lot of those skills in order to build rapport to abuse um, especially in the case of, of some, which I have some more books on later, like child abuse and child predators, they are almost always very intentional. And that intentionality actually falls, it makes them look like someone who's winsome and really good with kids. So the profile of someone who's like the ideal youth pastor and someone who's an abuser sometimes can look terrifyingly similar because one mimics the other and and makes it difficult right and so the blanket statements can be like no you're actually just describing someone who's like character and just uses that to do good you know what i mean if they looked radically different i don't think like abuse abuse would work like the point is it's so similar that it can pass as good things yeah anyways i think that's enough said on that book it was a yeah i'd say it's for someone thinking through this it's a good read yeah i also though having read it i immediately had this sort of gut reaction that there's gotta be better books yeah, that, that was sure. without without even casting a lot of shade on it. Probably right. That's such a specific but very relatable feeling of like it's like, hmm, this was good, but there's got to be something better out there. Uh, up next, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp. I like this one more than How People Change. Agreed. Um, it felt like a more mature Paul David Tripp, also because he did write it later in life. Um, it just made me think a bunch. I don't have like any huge takeaways. I would just recommend this one, especially if you're trying to figure out how do I dig into my own heart and help other people do that too. So just a solid book, not tons to say on it. Also read it. Same thing said. Um, my next book was run, hide, repeat by Pauline Dakin. I think I said that right. Drunks, did you read this? No. Okay. Um, I can't really describe much of this book without spoiling it, and I do recommend it. Not like it's not like an insane off the charts. Where's Jacob heading? Oh, too bad. I wanted to hear about this one. Well, 
it's not an insanely high recommend, but it it's basically about this girl who was like on the run with her mom their entire life. Like they were always moving from city to city, and obviously because she was a girl, she didn't understand why. And the reason that she found out why later on in her twenties, though, when her mom explained it to her, was quite bizarre. And uh, I, I kind of wish this book. I wish it was maybe slightly shorter or condensed or something. And the part of the reason I'd say I don't put it as an insanely high recommend is there's not really a lesson or anything or like anything life changing, but it was fascinating and therefore entertaining. If you need a, if you need a good story for a road trip or something, I do recommend this one. One thing I'm just struck by is I think maybe not Jake quite as much, but you both Owen and Jesse read way more stories than I do. Maybe like, really quick menopause do you guys do that intentionally or is this just like you gravitate towards stories more um i interestingly like i love a good story and yet somehow i always gravitate towards the like how to's or the like the learning side of it in a, in a more technical sense it's because we're both a couple years older than you. No, I'm just kidding. That's literally the worst. I never get to flex this on Triangle, so I'm, I'm no, I, I'm you. You might like that for the rest of your life, uh, and I'm not really even older than you. But I, I, uh, up till this year, I did read way more nonfiction, and this year it was like I said. I think it was the biggest category was uh, the, the number one category was was memoirs and biographies, and then after that fiction and then after that nonfiction of various kinds because um i i find that they both i've learned from both but one also emotionally impacts me and sometimes nonfiction emotionally impacts me but so i, I do love nonfiction, but i'm like i wait till it's like the best possible book on the subject which i know you guys can't do because you're studying stuff so you have to read like 15 books on it but for me it's like if i want to learn about something i'll pick like maximum three or if it's something that i don't need to have a really well-rounded opinion on maybe just one mm. and i'll i'll do that to learn about it but if i want to like grow as a human i find it's more likely going to come from stories i think there's just something really beautiful about the human experience and being able to be wrong i know that sounds so i've talked about this on the podcast before it sounds so hippy dippy but um sometimes people explaining things wrongly can like you'll just have a character who's so flawed and they give you this terrible example but you learn so much from it as opposed to nonfiction, has to be right and when it's not right we get hung up on it which this podcast shows us because we've anytime there's been a critique with a book <laughs> we're like here's the thing so yeah i i will always love nonfiction. i do still love it but i definitely am right now on a huge story kick biographies and nonfiction and in fiction sorry so you want to know something really interesting and you can completely disagree that that he does this well uh, for sure that is what you just said jesse is the premise of dr phil's show mm. he he said he's like it, and obviously it's, it's campy it's entertainment all these things you can you can think it's tacky but he's like i want to show people the stories of these pathologies so that people see their own flaws in them and will realize some problems and he, he talked about it in Joe Rogan a bunch to really and like kind of walked through like what he what he hoped to accomplish with the show because Dr. Phil as a person's like like wildly thoughtful and and pretty interesting mm. and so again you can think, you can think the show's dumb I, I do but yeah. it's like that's what because he said he said what you don't see behind the scenes is we invest really heavily in the people that we get on the show to try and bring them help counseling all like all these things we don't just like 
parade a bad story and leave them to the lurch. But he said, what I want to accomplish with the show is that you, people will see their own flaws. And I, I respect that. I think that's cool. Yeah, and I think that part, speaking to that and to what Jesse was saying, is that we understand ourselves, and John Michael, I think this, this would resonate with you, is that we understand ourselves so often in metaphor, um, right? Yeah, and so... Like ones you live by. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's true, and I think that when you read fiction, you get to find analogs for your reality. Mm. And... Yes! Which you don't necessarily experience... And in reading nonfiction, nonfiction right. has to make this expositional claim to you. Fiction shows you analogies. And what do you do when you're reading a story about someone? You're constantly measuring yourself against them, comparing their traits to your yes. traits. You're thinking in those terms. For myself, um, why I read fiction quite a bit uh, and, and stories quite a bit, um, probably not necessarily that thoughtful. I like them. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is also... I. I am very, very passionate about storytelling. I yeah. obviously I do a lot of writing in the fiction space, and so uh, for me, reading stories it's just it's just the space that I'm, I care about. Right. Yeah. It's just interesting because I've uh, friends that I've kind of lost connection with used to would talk about how they don't read fiction. They would almost entirely read nonfiction, history, like true events, and their thing was like, "Why would I read about a fake story if I could read true stories?" And immediately that struck me as fundamentally wrong and missing something. And I more and more have been struck by how wrong that is. Because it doesn't accurately reflect how the human brain actually develops, does it? We develop in the, in the context of storytelling and in the context of analogies, right? So. And, and if you're really hung up on that, biographies are a great happy medium because you learn about Amen. the real world and a real person, but there's still a story. So, you know, if you're really hung up on that, sure. But I do think you're being short-sighted if you are entirely dismissing fiction as not useful. But also read nonfiction too. I mean, I this no, is, yeah, hundred percent, yeah, absolutely. We have everyone here is reading lots of nonfiction. So I, I, I said that right now it's been this, but I did a, a poll just out of curiosity over the last four years of like those four categories I set, where it's like Christian nonfiction, assorted nonfiction, memoirs and biographies, and and fiction, and it was like almost perfect quarters, which is an accident, but I'm, I'm happy about that. I like that ratio. You are such a balanced man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my next book is uh, The True Story of the Whole World by Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew. Um, it is just, it's a, it's a very quick summary overview of the Bible um, as accounting for just the, the, the sort of the redemptive arc of the Bible, Genesis all the way through Revelation. Uh, it was for school. I had like a, a RHEL class. Uh, and so that was something I had to read. Um, but I also... Uh, quite enjoyed it actually reading the the bible's story it, from that sort of like you know 5000 foot view uh, going super fast um is is useful and uh actually by the end it was actually quite moving i was almost by the time i hit revelation it was actually wow. i was almost tearing up just because of the you get to see so, we're often so fragmentary in terms of how we think about the bits in the bible right mm -hmm. and so this book really connected with me is like no like there is there is a God who's in control, and this is the plan, and it's a beautiful plan, right? And so, yeah, it was good. It was also, if you are already an established Christian, there's really nothing in there that's going to be new to you. But maybe it's just that that experience that might be new. Hmm. How long is it? Uh, probably in the 180, 200 page range, something like that. Cool. 
Nice. I'm going to knock out a few here. Um, the Gospel for Disordered Lives, Robert Jones, Kristen Kellen, Rob Green. It's a it's a biblical counseling textbook. It's it's good. It's more textbooky. Cool. Instruments in Redeemer's Hands. We already talked about that. Jermichael said everything I'd want to say. On Guard, Deepak Raju. Fantastic book. If you're in any kind of church leadership, if you're a church member. So here's what you should do with this book. Read... Um, what is a girl worth first? That will prime, if you're interested in getting into the abuse conversation at all, that'll prime you with a rich understanding of the empathy needed to really care about this issue. And then On Guard by Deepak Raju is so practical. He's just like, it's basically how the whole thesis of the book is, this is how you can abuse-proof your church, for specifically for child abuse. Boom. And it goes through the tactics, the methods, how you can do that. It's as practical as like, how do you set up a nursery with the windows to be the most functional way to stop abuse? How do you rotate your staff? It's such a practical book. And I think it's helpful for church members to read too, because you can go, oh, why should I, why should I jump through a couple of annoying loops when checking in and checking out my kids for like Sunday school and, and like, and childcare and stuff? Because those loops are specifically designed to make it very difficult for an abuser to do to, to abuse kids. The reason that's important is because the absolute scum of the earth people who want to abuse kids are scoping out places that they know have lax security and lax systems. And they know they will be able to abuse more efficiently there. So having those kind of systems and rhythms in place in your church is going to make potential abusers just stay clear and never bother. They're never going to want to join your church. And so, and that's why like the, the level of preemptiveness is really important and really helpful to have. So honestly, I'd say almost anyone should give this a quick read. It's like a couple hundred pages and it'll just kind of get your brain in a sad but important place of thinking through what an abuser might be thinking when they look at your church. Really, really recommend it. Good stuff. What was that called? Um, On Guard by Deepak Raju. My next book is Outspoken by Veronica Rudeckert. Um, this is a book about public speaking and specifically women public speaking. Um, for a bunch of reasons, I was just thinking about uh, public speaking this year a lot. And this was a book kind of sort of recommended to me. I saw it recommended to other people. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a listen. I did not enjoy it. It definitely helped me empathize with like women public speakers struggle with a lot more things, even just down to like some of the like microphones are designed to go on men's belts. So like for a woman to wear a dress, it's like, it's just awkward and like they have to like tape it then to the dress somewhere like or you have to wear a like pants with a belt or something like that so she goes through a lot of things like that and how like even inside of public speaking everything's designed to be male oriented and male authority speaking stuff like that it was just tough because it was like it was a mixture of things like yep fair enough i see what you're saying you're giving some good practical tips here and then she just kept like weaving in these gigantic statements that were like unfounded, I think, and like also comparing them to to speakers that I really hate. Like, so I was just, I was frustrated by the book. 
um, not a recommend. Uh, then Ballad of Songbird and Snakes, Suzanne Collins, amazing. Okay, my next book was The Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century by Brett Weinstein and Heather Hang. Uh, they're married. She didn't... Uh, all of us? Have you? Not? Um, okay, it was it was pretty good. I found a lot of it interesting. I... Here's the thing. Uh, most of the book is predicated on the idea of, like, Chesterton's fence, which, for those of you who don't know, I didn't know before I read the book, is, like, you see a fence and you want to take it down because you think it's useless... And Chesterton would say, uh, if you can come to me and tell me why this fence was put up and why it's needed, then maybe I'll let you tear it down. Um, did I explain that right? Pretty much. It's basically like you need to understand, uh, or, or as Jordan Peterson would say, don't needlessly den denigrate institutions or something like that. Uh, that's kind of their, their, their idea is like, hey, there's these things that have been around for forever and we're taking them away and it's causing chaos in our world and... Uh, I, I felt like they could have applied that same logic to some of their own ideas. Not that I had actual hardcore critiques, but there were some where I was like, you're actually kind of the one imp imposing a new idea here and it hasn't really been tested. And you're sort of saying this like it's like it's absolutely true. Not a huge critique. Interesting book. And again, I don't I don't I, I don't have a reason why I think their ideas were wrong. I just felt like they were pretty confident about some stuff that I don't actually think has a ton of precedent. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Good book like not pursuing medical help when your son breaks his arm you mean like that that was one yeah yeah that that was like the part of in the story i'm like okay and also i i allowed for the fact that they're proposing new ideas but what they're referencing is they had this whole chapter chapter three i think where they give the idea that no we have precedence because of our evolutionary backstory right so that's yeah. how they like foundationally say no 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 we're the oldest one in the room. You know what I mean? In terms of their ideas. I know. It, but it, then they're like, literally, like he broke his arm and we did nothing and it worked out fine. And you're just like, oh, this, you guys are weird now. But I mean, that, weirdly, that wasn't even the strongest example. I don't remember what my examples were. This is one book this year that I didn't take a ton of notes on. I don't put it super high on my recommend list. I enjoyed it, but I, I, I'm moving on. All right, my next one is The Analex uh, by Confucius. I had to do this for school. Um, it's one of those sort of like ancient wisdom literature type books where you have um, all kinds of principles laid out in a, in, an, in a format that's not very clear in terms of like uh, thematic grouping or anything like that. So kind of like the book of Proverbs, right? Where you're like, here's a good idea and here's a completely or at least seemingly unrelated good idea right mm. um there's a lot of books like this actually from that time period where they just like write down smart ideas in really long lists it was not my favorite within that genre um it was very focused on politics um but yeah it was good it was good it's the kind of thing i would probably read again eventually okay just to yeah Keep myself reminded of what is like because confucianism is so foundational in terms of like historic chinese culture mm. that it is it is a pretty important a very very influential work and it is something that i would read again on that basis alone if nothing else nice um the problems of christian leadership by john stott great little book on leadership 
John Stott is awesome. He writes in a really, really simple pastoral way, at least from for this book. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was great. Uh, Body Keeps the Score. We already talked about that. Fantastic book. And then The Path to Being a Pastor by Bobby Jamison. Again, another incredible book. Um, anyone who's considering pastoral ministry should read this. Or not. Or, frankly, yeah. One of the cool things about it is, uh, Jem, you can weigh in on this too. Um, Bobby Jamison James, is an incredibly clear, concise, and fast writer. He has like that book is like 30 chapters, right? Like it's like it's got a ton of chapters, but they're all like a handful of pages long. And they're just like, here's an important aspect on the path to being a pastor. Next. Next. And it's just like it is just really refreshing to read because you just know it's just think it's it's quick. It's digestible. And I just really I really liked it. It's great. And it was good in the sense of it's not like it was basic ideas. And like, okay, we're only going to scratch the surface of a bunch of things here. He starts by addressing like, why do we talk about like kind of the whole idea of like calling and the good parts of this kind of like mystical calling thing or like the external call and the internal call kind of like approaches the good parts of it, but also shows about how, you know, the Bible doesn't actually really talk about it that way. It talks about like aspiring to leadership and um, yeah, just, and then also goes through just the disciplines, even loving learning how to read basic things that people wanting to be pastors should do or people who already are and he applies it more generally to elders that's why i say more people should read it yeah i think most people should aspire to be an elder or a deacon i'm speaking to men here um so it's just it's just a good book um definitely recommend it yeah and and in, and one of the contexts for that is in the baptist context there is no distinction between the pastor and the elder right essentially <clears throat> Uh, so my next book of Plymouth Plantation, William Bradford. Uh, this was a recommendation from a voice prof that we talked to, uh, Jake and I, after he talked, did like a talk on reading. And this was just really interesting. Uh, basically a direct uh, handwritten recounting of uh, the Puritans crossing over and Plymouth Plantation. It was just really cool because it's actually... Uh, you get a lot of random details and interestingly it's a lot of business details which I like I would have thought it would be a lot more of like religious liberty kind of stuff and it, it is that's the context but it's a ton of talking about how like they would deal with Christians and then sometimes their common faith would like be able to form this bond of trust and like starting a new world and a place where they could worship God and then also just how much of it was like writing up business contracts with each other because this was like a big venture, like where p people bought stock in. So it's just cool. It's a really fun story. And then Path to Being a Pastor is my next one, uh, which we just talked about. Awesome. My next book was uh, Deeper by Dane Ortland. Um, I loved this book. It was quite beautiful, as you would come to expect from Dane Ortland. He wrote Gentle and Lily. And this is kind of like unofficially a sequel. I know it's not actually, but the cover looks very similar thematically and the the themes felt like a follow-up my only critique of this book would be that i don't know if i even like it's it's hard for me to remember what was really what it was really about or a very super clear theme but it was really beautiful and like that that's kind of enough reason to read a book and i would say like if you're looking I, I don't often read devotionals and i don't know if it's supposed to be a devotional but this just paired well as like a thing to read in the morning and sort of get your day started in a good mindset so i recommend plug uh if you happen to be 
really admirous of the covers of Deeper and Gentle and Lowly. You can listen to a podcast I did with uh, Jonathan Singer. I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, it's Jonathan Singer. And uh, he did all the, he works at Crossway. He's a lead designer and he did all the cover art for those series. And it's a really good conversation. One, two, three. Ooh. <laughs> nobody, nobody join me for that. But. All of the uh, Union series is actually really good. They just came out with another one very recently. And um, yeah, they're just like, they're very devotional. But also like Dustin Bench, who's one of my professors, did one on the beauty of the local church. Just, just good stuff. Hmm. Love that. All right. My next book is... The Art of Writing and the Gifts of Writers by C.S. Lewis. So I've never even heard of this book. So it's Tell a me collection it. of essays um, but about uh, writing, but also a little bit more broadly about reading, about how to analyze writing uh, properly, and also about like review and criticism of writing, which is kind of an interesting thing. He talks about like people, you know, criticizing his works and how he how he takes criticism as a writer that i thought that essay was kind of interesting um i really really enjoyed it and i will be rereading it shortly for a a deeper go sometimes you do that you finish a book and you're like well clearly i need to go back through that one and take out a little bit more um but that's one of them and i would recommend it jesse you're on a crazy reading books about how to write books kind of uh trip right now so that I'd, i'd add that to the list give me the title again um the Art of Writing and the Gifts of Writers. I really want to read this book. Um, I think it's free on the Audible. Thing. Yeah, so it is free on the Audible. Uh, did you listen to it there? Okay. I hated the narration narrator. I didn't like What was really? wrong with him? I don't remember. I just remember finding him really boring and plotting and kind of like just monotone. And I was just okay. I was like, ah, I don't want to consume. For me, like, for me, Lewis's writing... And Lewis's voice sparkles a lot. Like, I feel like he's smiling every single time. It's true. I, I'm, you know, I'm picky about Lewis, right? Like, like Lewis I just feel readers. like... I, and also, like, I feel like he's got a pipe in his hand. He's like, oh, what a lads. And, like, I it just... There's something about that. And I don't want to read his writing in a plotting tone. I want to be charmed. I want to be charmed. Yeah. I feel charms you. I've had some bad C.S. Lewis writer readers. Charm is abuse. Segway, <laughs> <laughs> segway. Anyways, um... Uh, next on my list is Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Nice. Let's go. Haven't read it, but nice anyway. Me and Jake are going to disagree so hard on this one. Um, Jake hated it, didn't he? He hated it. I did not enjoy it. Uh, okay, this would have Taking been... Taking it off my list right now. First of all, you're wrong. Let's Listen, give you your defense. This would have <laughs> been a really, really good short story. That was legitimately fifteen percent the length of the original. <laughs> like Tulsa, like I, I just it's it, it's kind of a cool like yeah it's it's a foray into like into like ma- what is marriage and and also it's like a lot of, I mean the you know there's a lot of betrayal and infidelity and stuff like that and you know it's got some themes you know, ah, I just wasn't. I found him boring. I found Tolstoy would just go on these long tangents about agriculture, or one of the characters would rather go on these long tangents about agriculture that you just be like, okay, that served nothing of the plot at all. And then it ends, like, well, it ends in a certain way. I'm not going to spoil it. It's got a very dramatic ending. And then Tolstoy just feels like going on for another, like, 32 pages about 
agriculture and stuff. And it's like, has nothing. It's got this weird, like, cook clump, cook clump ending where you're like, okay, that's the end of the book, I suppose. All right. I just, if it was meandering, I didn't feel like there was a coherent point. Like, what was the point? What was the point of Anna Karenina? What was the message? What was the theme? And I know I could critique, like, no, one, I mean, one of my favorite books ever is, is East of Eden, obviously, and there isn't a point to that as well. Like, I get the critique, but I just found it, it was... Kind of dude, there's there's also a very clear point to Anna Karenina, I think. Which is? Which is comparing the two life choices of a woman who had a happy, good life and portraying the like the true seduction of an adulterous relationship and her bad choices of that, the repercussions that really like the point of taking so long with it was to like painstakingly walk through that process of her choice and the repercussions. And then the whole book is going back and forth between the, another story where they're kind of like farmer kind of ditzy. He's like, he's not a smart person in some ways, but like showing the beauty of them, like dating getting to know each other and then like that relationship their marriage was borderline dysfunctional too though like come on lemon lemon barely comes back it's like were you with anna oh no and then kitty faints at the thought like apparently he's like just like two steps from being utterly seducted it's like oh come on i thought it was i thought they did a really good job of painting it especially just the like the comparison of the lifestyle so i wildly good short story idea I, I hardcore disagree, but we disagree. Have you read this, Owen? My, my main memory of this is being at Nathan Bout's wedding and Mike Ostroff standing in a circle of us boys and going on for 10 minutes about how much he loved this book. I've never seen him be this excited about anything. And, uh, and, and when I say 10 minutes, I wasn't saying that in a disparaging way. I like I enjoyed the entire 10 minutes like deeply. I almost feel like I'm scared to read the book to be disappointed because he... Micah he, is so fired up about this book. He really is. Yeah. He's, he's, he's talked about lots of books being like, oh, they were really great. And then this one, he was freaking out. He told me that this is his favorite piece of fiction. I disagree with that, but I can see the the beauty of it. Um, I was at, at my family reunion the other day. We were discussing russian novels and why they're so long and my theory as someone who's read like pretty much nothing of it is i was thinking about how back in the day when i worked at the greenhouse sometimes i would look for a uh like i would look at like the longest stephen king novel ever because i'd just be like i need to use this credit to fill up lots of time and i was wondering like i wonder if there's just these like russians in the winter and they go to a market once a year and they buy oh, yeah. one book no that's they're like exactly i want this why. book to last me the winter no, that's, so. <laughs> that is exactly why okay. they're that long great that's like and, the cartoonish explanation i came up with glad to hear sure. that it's somewhat accurate and i'm not i'm not the length doesn't bother me I, I read some tomes like i love crime and punishment it's it's a thick book too this one just felt yeah fair enough. anyways fair enough next All right. hit me jim <clears throat> Uh, next on my list, I'm going to do three together because it's three volumes. They're all big volumes, but um, uh, The Baptist, Volume 1, 2, and 3 by Tom Nettles. Uh, it's basically just a long history walking through the yeah Baptist history origins, where do we come from, um, and particularly like he's making an argument through the whole three volumes that Reformed Baptists come from english puritan separatist movement which is deeply connected to the reformation kind of coming out of that so 
I I was I totally agree with him. There are different like there's the trail of blood kind of perspective. There's there's other ones, but which no one holds to. Which really no one holds to. But so this is like this is the position I think most people hold to now. Um, but I've just I both like there were points in these books that I like had tears, and other points where I was like tears of boredom. It was (laughs) so like it was. Didn't stop crying from start yeah. to finish. <laughs> These are like sodden pages. Like, <laughs> uh, can I borrow this book? No, it doesn't exist anymore. It's a wash. <laughs> it's just so many characters over and over and over, and some of them are just incredibly boring, and some of them are really, really winsome. So, it was too much. It was. 1,500 pages of reading between those. And it's like, it didn't need to be that long to make the point. Um, and it didn't have enough time to go into it, the characters, in my opinion, to really get into any of them. But I still enjoyed it. And I'm I'm glad I read them because it really gave me a solid footing of like, where are Baptists come from? There's so many misconceptions of like, yeah, just the origins of it. And uh, that was really helpful for me. Great. Uh, my next book was Gladys Allward by Janet and Jeff Benj. Uh, has anyone here read a biography on Gla- Gladys Allward? Yep. Wow. Cool. I one. don't know why this wasn't like one of the top missionary biographies that I was like everyone telling me to read. It's definitely the craziest missionary story I've ever read. She has possibly like one of the most admirable hearts I've ever seen and not necessarily one of the most admirable brains, but it was kind of like, but, but no, 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 she, she would just, she, she basically was just like kind of super impulsive, but in like a really God honoring way. So I like, I love it. And I actually feel like I could, you know, we could learn from that more than we could learn from necessarily like making super well thought out decisions, but she would just be like, I have to go to China. And so she saved up her money like crazy gets on a train and gets there and like the missionary there wasn't really prepared for her and then that missionary dies right away and she's suddenly taking over this giant orphanage and suddenly she has 300 children and then suddenly she's like the ambassador of enforcing non-foot binding principles for the thing and then suddenly the uh, Mandarin is like I need you to go break up a prison riot and he just drops her into a prison of people rioting because he thinks that she'll be able to supernaturally stop them then she does supernaturally stop the prison riot it was just a gnarly like story from start finish it is phenomenal and there's actually a pretty good old movie made about the life of Gladys Allward starring Ingrid Bergman yeah but but, but one of the movies apparently added a weird romance that literally didn't exist at all I don't know if it was that movie it was probably the Ingrid Bergman one and apparently she was very upset about that or something because she like was still somewhat alive when they made it oh was she like I mean like I mean she here's the thing she 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 was in these sort of remote villages and I think missed sort of the technological revolution and so they sort of asked her about making film rights and she was like sure and then sort of like found out about it all of it later because I think she her think life she is died. phenomenal I've read a couple books about her so I don't so I would like to ask you on which book do you recommend because this book I read it and I was like so I verified a bunch of the facts that were true but like after reading a um, I, and I know he's the gold standard so you can't compare everyone here but after reading a uh, whatchamacallit a uh, Walter Walt Isaacson bi- biography it's like the gold standard of like everything he does he explains three sources of research and he's like this information came from like a letter to his nephew but also this other letter kind of contradicts it this biography was just like then this happened then this happened so I had no clue I went on and verified that it all was at least seemed to be true 
and seem to be verified by lots of sources. But all that to say, like, if you want a quick biography, it was fine. It just wasn't. I, I don't know. What, what's a better written biography? I haven't. I don't. I wouldn't know. I haven't read anything that's in depth. I've read a couple, like, almost like those, you know, biographies for teens kind of books about her when I was a teen. Yeah, that's what it was. It was written kind of for teens. So I don't know if you want a quick one, it's good, but maybe just look up to see if there's other options. Yeah. Wasn't it a boxer rebellion that started while she was in China? Wasn't yes, that? terrible, yeah. insane, like, insane stuff. It... It's it's just a very high paced story of like just one insane story to the next. I would can't can't recommend it enough. Just a, a crazy hero. It yeah. can't believe it's not more well known. Yeah. Um, my I'm gonna group two books here just to try to catch up with you guys. Uh, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad um, and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce Um, so they're not very similar books written by contemporaries Um, both of them kind of dark honestly Um, Heart of Darkness Heart of Darkness really? yeah it was was kind of dark man I don't know what to tell you yeah actually extremely dark what did you think of that book? Um, why did you read it? yes what did you think of it? Well, you told me first. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> I asked you first. Okay, John Michael. Um, so, I liked it. I liked it, but it... Yeah, it was harrowing. Like, I, I felt scared sometimes reading it. And also horrified sometimes reading it. Like, yeah. the, the point at which he sees, like, this palisade and he realizes that they're, like, heads on stakes and this crazy stuff that's going on is just crazy. Yeah, it's... Fiction? Both yeah, they're both fiction. Yeah. Although I guess Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is supposed to be semi autobiographical uh, for James Joyce, but um, but it's, yeah, they're both fiction. He wrote Ulysses, right? Yeah. Which is like supposedly one of the hardest books to read ever. I have never attempted it, but yeah. Cool. Yeah, I I don't know. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, I didn't find super compelling, but a lot of it has to do with like Irish culture and Irish politics and stuff like that. And it's one of those books where it's like. I am not saying it's bad. I'm saying I have no points of reference that make this easy for me to empathize. And he doesn't make a great effort at connecting those dots for you. You mm. get it or you don't kind of thing, right? So I, I yeah, I didn't, I didn't find that it resonated really hard. I, I found it hard to care about his characters, especially his main character. Yeah. This Heart of Darkness for me was, stands out at least just because that was when I realized, oh, like, certain kinds of books you have to take time meditating on the themes to really like in a classical kind of book um because i'd I'd blitz through lots of like oh this is a great classic and been like what is this like why is this a classic um and that was one where i was like okay i had i was forced to slow down with it because i took it with a class as well a literature class and then wrote an essay on it and was like Oh, okay. Like, there's some really cool themes that's going on here. Yeah. This is this is actually a that's a great book. experience. Actually, is having to properly, and that's even part of one of the beauties of this podcast that we do is that it makes me think. As even as I'm just reading the book, I'll be thinking, "Huh, I wonder what my commentary on this book would mm. be." Right? It makes you think just a little bit more analytically. I had one of the coolest privileges of taking a course in ancient Greek comedy at Brock, and there's so many of these things where if I read them by myself, I'd be like. This is not very funny, and I don't get it. But because I took them week by week, one one a week with a brilliant prof, I, he just got to pull out some of the genuinely hilarious elements inside of like Greco-Roman culture that I just missed because you know I'm not two thousand years old, and so it, it was just great. Like I, I'm super. There's some stuff. A good classics degree will just, it's just really really cool and enjoyable if nothing else. 
So I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'm going to blitz through three just because I really want to talk about the third one. Uh, Reclaim Your Marriage by Jenny Solomon. Great book. Um, it's it's uh, The subtext is help for wives who have hurt by their husband's use, porn use. I think something something like that. But it's for wives whose husbands have, have been viewing porn. And it's a really, really helpful book. It's short. It's winsome. Honestly, I actually wish a lot of guys would read it as, again, I feel like I say this phrase a lot, but an exercise in empathy. Just know know what's going on. What are you doing? If you're if you're watching porn, you are you have the potential to be really hurting someone you care about closely. And and I know we talked to Jenny about it because she's in the documentary, and she she said that was part of her goals writing the book the way she did. Was she said hopefully if any guys read it, I want them to know what it's like to be a wife who's been hurt. Mm. And for that, the book was amazing. Simple, clear, used a lot of stories. It's also like just in, um, but, but reclaim your marriage. Reclaim your marriage, Jenny Solomon. It's a companion to uh, Redeem Your Marriage by her husband, Curtis Solomon. Curtis Solomon. Yeah, it's also just like one of the few book resources specifically for women, which is who have been hurt, hurt. Yeah, exactly. For spouses, specifically women who've been hurt <clears throat> through pornography, which is mind blowing. But there's really not very many other things for yeah. for wives. Yep. So big reco with her. Big reco. Really lovely woman too. Like yeah, filming with Jenny, she was, she's such a sweetheart and like a really cool like motherly presence and has a great sense of humor too. Like I, she, it was just really fun working with her on this. Um, <laughs> there's there's some jokes that yeah. Anyways, um, Jim Michael just shot me a look. Uh, Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, another great book. Okay, this one I want to talk about this one. Drugs without the hot air. Subtitle is Making Sense of Legal and Illegal Drugs by a man whose name is so unfortunate that he's dealing with this topic. David Nutt, which is just poor guy. Sad last name. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like if your last name's Nutt and you're talking about drugs, it's kind of... Anyways, really, really, really good book. So it basically is, it's a pretty ambitious book. It basically just wants to tackle the topic of drugs, goes through it a little bit from a moral perspective, but mostly from legislative perspective, because he was on several UK drug, um, drug policy advisory boards. And basically he's like, he does a lot with this book. He takes a whole lot of different types of drugs, does a really deep dive into what they do, how they affect you. Um, so like there's a biological component, but also more the history of the drug and the history of its legalization in different countries, what the effects of criminalizing the drugs are, what they're not. And it is so interesting getting the perspectives of someone who's deep in that world, in the legalization world, because there are really big complexities with drug legislation that you don't realize. So for example, right, there's, there's this one drug, I think it was MDMA that was, um, out as a party drug for a while and when it was as a party drug and it wasn't it was kind of flying under the radar wasn't being legalized heroin deaths dropped like a rock then they caught on mdma it's a pretty pretty you know active drug so they made mdma illegal heroin deaths shot up and so but mdma deaths there's not it's pretty hard to die from from molly overdose so and so you go okay well that's really interesting because what does it mean to have less drug deaths overall at the expense of not criminalizing one drug. And you start going, well, okay, hold up. Are you encouraging drug use? Yes, no. It, there's just very, like, the moral questions of drug use 
from especially from a Christian perspective, and the legalization questions are not different, but they're not the same. And it just he walks through, and then he walks through one of the coolest things he did in the book was he the he created what he called a, a harm metric. So he took sixteen variables of personal harm to your personal harm to yourself, economic harm, um, harm to friends and family. Uh, government enforcing harm and just basically took 16 variables of all the ways drugs are bad can do damage every almost if he basically tried to think of it 16 categories of almost every possible way drugs do damage a global harm was one of them too and then rank ordered all of the common drugs by order of most harm reduction and then he basically they're very clear he's like listen this is not this is this is barely scientific because this is it's really hard to categorize these things, right? You're taking so many multi-dimensional, but the best is the best we could. Then we tried this in different studies, and they all uh, different countries. So they tried that they did it in the Canadian, they did a U.S. test, and they all came out roughly the same, which he said was encouraging because it kind of showed some validity to the model, and it was so interesting because it was on a scale of a, of one to hundred, and so they gave um, they gave pretty sure they gave heroin a score of 100 as just the overwhelmingly most damaging drug mm. um in certain in sorry in certain categories like personal health and stuff and what it forward out was alcohol and tobacco are far and away the most damaging drugs by a long shot as far as economic damages and they they're, they're factoring in drunk driving they're factoring in health like what the what the cost is to your healthcare system in whatever country you're in between the between those two they are not even the ghost of close to most of the other drugs and then you go all the way down to some of the psychedelics like LSD and stuff they scored like a 5 or a 6 as far as damage low personal damage low interpersonal damage low economic low all these different things so it's just really interesting like what do you make of that it's at least one interesting data point and then he goes, okay, so let's take LSD. And he goes through the history of, of the guy who, who invented LSD on accident from lysergic acid. And like that's and then what culturally happened in the States, because it was more in the States, but then a bit in the UK. Just an interesting, interesting book. Um, he'll have conclusions, his, some of his personal conclusions that you'll disagree with if you give it a read, almost for sure, right? He's pretty pro-legalization uh, of marijuana, um, which flows from him basically saying, I can't justify the harm the, the comparative harm that marijuana has on society and your personal life and your family life interpersonal and compared to marijuana and or compared to alcohol and tobacco he's like there's not even a competition so in his mind for his metrics he would just not care it's just interesting it's a really interesting book that i think is really helpful if you're just like want to get some clarity on the topic mm. um yeah I, I just enjoyed it he's there's some times where his biases showed through a little bit and so read it slightly carefully. There's other people who I feel like are, are more rigorous. Like that. Like I think I think he I, he wrote as someone who I think is very frustrated that marijuana isn't illegal, isn't legal, and so that kind of shows. So sometimes he gets kind of snarky, and I just wish he wasn't like that. I was like, bro, just be a little more balanced. I could recommend your book faster that way. But on the whole, thoroughly enjoyed it. I just really <laughs> recommend a lot of people read it if you're just interested in trying to understand some of these conversations. And I have a very I feel like I genuinely have an interesting perspective on it all from working on the worst effect of drugs, which is at a drug rehab program. So I can see what the darkest end of that looks like. And it's just, yeah, it's interesting, man. It's super interesting. A lot of the stuff that I've seen at the shelter pairs well with what he was saying. Cool. Very cool. Um, 
We talked about this book, Pursuing Peace. Uh, we also talked about this, Winnie the Pooh, A.A. A. Mill. Um, shame Interrupted, Edward T. Welch. Uh, I wrote a paper on shame this year, which was such a good exercise. I think there's a huge amount of confusion on shame and guilt. The differences, what is shame, the experience of it, cultural shame, can shame be redemptive? Um, and then even just going through like the biblical themes of shame. And one of the things he really helpfully points out uh, is the Bible uses three main themes to talk about shame. And that start from like Genesis and run all the way to Revelation, which is nakedness, exile, and um, oh man, what's the third one, Jake? Isolation? No. Oh, Uncleanness, nakedness, exile, and uncleanness as the three main biblical themes for shame. Anyways, it's it's a really good book. My problem with it is it wasn't very like it doesn't make shame as far as like broad categories very clear, but it does a really good job like counseling through how do we think about shame and how does the Bible interact with our experience of shame. Uh, and I'm going to pair this with the next one too, just because they're the same thing. Um, Shame, Being Known and Loved by Esther Liu. Uh, it's a 30-day devotional. This is also an amazing one. Like, this is the this is the kind of thing I would give to someone who's like really struggles with shame. Yeah. It's just, it's very practical. Two pages of reading per day for uh, 30 days. And does a nice balance of like walking categorically through things and practically using scripture, applying into uh, the life problems. So very good. And I think shame is something that more people should read on. Awesome. I might read that one. Uh, okay. <clears throat> the Group of Seven and Tom Thompson. Um, Owen told me that I should read more art books. So when I went to a beautiful Tom Thompson exhibit, I, I just love Tom Thompson. He speaks to my heart with his swirly little trees. And... <clears throat> swirly little trees. And... Uh, uh, so I bought this book and it's about, it's very thick, but it's about 25% history on the group of seven and sort of little biographies on them. And then the rest is photos of their art. Um, and so I gotta be honest, their story really wasn't that interesting to me. Um, there were parts, but a lot of it, I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't care. I, I made it through so that I could say this was a book. Um, but the artwork is amazing, and I totally, as much as it's not as good looking at it on the page as it would be as looking at it on a canvas, getting their entire book is just a wonderful thing to own. I have been doing little mini vacations occasionally, sometimes during the day. If I'm feeling a little stressed in the afternoon, I'll take a break, and two things I like to do is I'll either go to a cafe and I'll sip a latte and I'll have the entire thing with my eyes closed without doing anything else. That is amazing. Or sometimes I'll just sit and stare at one piece of art for about five minutes and just um, immerse myself in that. So those are two very like, yeah, it's like, it feels like hours of vacation, but you can do it in a few minutes. Deep rest as well as deep work. You know what I'm saying? Mm. All right. I am sorry that you have been once again disappointed by my <laughs> overall campaign to get you to read more art history. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I, I will have you loving an art history book yet. Um, let's see. What have I got going on? I've got Out of the Depths, and I'll do two here. Out of the Depths by John Newton. It's his autobiogra autobiography. 
Uh, and then a biography of Vincent van Gogh. Uh, and oh, hold up, Vincent van Gogh. Mm-hmm. Not Vincent it's not van Gogh. So that's actually funny. I've actually looked it up in the past, and there are radically different ways of pronouncing it. Um, the English tradition is Gough. There's probably entire scholars who did their entire PhD on which one it was. Yeah. The, the French say Gog. What? Vincent van Gogh. As if I needed any more... Re- no, okay. I'm not <laughs> <sure. laughs> Jesse, no! Yeah, not right. on air, please. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more reason. <laughs> no, okay, okay, let me move on. So, Out of the Depths by John Newton um, is uh, his autobiography. Um, and I love autobiographies. Uh, just that sort of like self-reflection and thinking about your life. Um, obviously, he's writing it um, as someone who ended up a Christian, but who spent a, a massive amount of time living in rebellion against God. And... It's interesting that that, of course, shapes how he how he narrates events from his past, right? Because he sees them as contextualized by his eventual conversion, um, and and that it's a really cool story because he has a really cool life, and you're kind of like blown away by the number of adventures he had. But he's constantly referring to these moments where he can see that God was with him you know, looking back and you can see that God was working on him and developing him looking back, but it gives the book almost a courtship style structure, which is something that I thought about. He didn't say this explicitly, but as as I was reflecting on the book afterwards, I was like, this gives it a kind of like a courtship structure, almost like a will they, won't they? Does that kind of make sense where you're kind of like, like God is trying so hard to win this guy over. Is he, you know what I mean? Is this going to be successful almost? Of course, we know it is and everything else, but it has that same sort of like love story type structure. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and, and could that possibly make sense too? And this is my, my greater extrapolation for us to take home with us for our own sort of stories of our relationship with God. Do you know what I mean? Of a wooing type structure. Anyway, mm. so that's interesting and well worth uh, well worth reading or listening to. Obviously, he's the guy who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. I feel like everyone knows that. Uh, but in case you didn't, Vincent van Gogh, um, interesting character, uh, listening to his biography was great. Um, so, who wrote it? pardon? Who, who wrote it? Uh, Julia Meyer Graf. I have no idea. Okay. Just, yeah. Um, it was good. Shout out to Julia. That's it. I really enjoy reading my art history books. Again, I um I think Jesse would too, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's 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 good stuff. He's crazy. Obviously, like Van Gogh was actually. I'd love to know what a contemporary diagnosis would be. Hmm. Um, and of course, he hurt hurt himself sometimes, and then he would eventually end up killing himself. You know, he ended up killing himself by shooting himself in the stomach can you imagine attempting suicide by shooting yourself in the stomach that's like if you wanted to think of the most painful way to leave just oh my goodness i just like honestly reading it and also it's heartbreaking to reach that point because at that point you're pretty invested in this guy he's got a really massively complex struggle with his existence and he's constantly manifesting it artistically which is so cool but then to reach this point it's like oh like it it was actually very effective to reach that point just to see him passing out of this world full of regret and pain just yeah yeah. Yeah. that's sad yeah 
Next book on my list is, um, I don't know about you guys, I also did this by month, so I'm in November right now. Oh, I wish just I about to pass regrets. into November. Okay. Um, I don't know, it's just one way I did it, number and month. That Will Never Work by Mark Randolph, uh, the guy who co-founded Netflix, and it was his biography, or his autobiography. Good title. Yeah. So basically, the, the, the thesis is, is kind of when people, when he started that idea of Netflix, that what people said is that will never work right turns out it worked quite well um it was cool so the things i really liked about it <laughs> i, I thing, want people to say that at the end of my life <laughs> what like like as in like that that would never have worked and then just like everything i did proved that wrong <laughs> i don't feel the need for i'm naysayers. personally hoping for uh well done good and faithful service, oh but, nice but turned out it did work out quite well Good and faith servant also works out pretty good too. I like you Don. turned out well. Okay. <laughs> God's like, I sovereignly ordained this, and even I'm surprised. <laughs> I think we just crossed that boundary into a lot of heresy. <laughs> pretty standard. Okay. Um, things I liked about it, it was, it was really cool to see them. Like, it's really fun to hear just a scrappy startup, you know, trying to figure out what what worked and what didn't work with Netflix. Because initially, right, it was a DVD rental service. And so it, the, the streaming thing came way, way later. And it really came about because of the revolution in DVDs. Because if, if, if initially they were going to be like uh, cassette, not cassette, what are they called? VCR. And, uh, but the, the cost of shipping just didn't work. And then when CDs came out, it was kind of a race to see if the technology would catch on while they were raising capital in order to fund the company. So it was kind of like this massive gamble. And it was just really cool to see that. Um, he also has these very interesting thoughts on like self-reflection thoughts on who he is because he kind of got booted out of CEO like midway through the book and he does a pretty good job of showing like it was a hard but also needed that needed to happen because he wasn't a great CEO. He was a much better founder like he's a good entrepreneur but not a good runner. And so that was interesting. Um, yeah, it's just a good book. I found him a little grandiose at times of his own skills and talents. As so many business books are. Yeah, yeah. There's that. And so I, I sometimes was kind of like, maybe I'll just a little salt on this whole conversation. But I really I really enjoyed it. Um, not not everyone's like that when they're talking about their own skills. That's the one thing. I read on writing, too, um, Jesse, just this last, last few weeks. And... That's one thing I don't get from Stephen King at all. He's just like, nope, I wrote a bunch of books. People like them. I think they're pretty good. Moving on. And he's just like, no. <laughs> that's, like, exa <laughs> that's exactly what he sounds like. <laughs> he's just like, he's just not. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm clearly talented and good at what I do. And I'm not really going to blow my own horn with it. It's just let's keep. I feel like he's that. a hyper accurate view. Yeah. Because he knows actually. he's a good writer. He also knows that he hasn't written a masterpiece. Yeah. And that he definitely hasn't written a masterpiece. Yeah. And he's very quick to praise other writers that he thinks are fantastic, which I think is one yeah. of the best ways to really deflect. Like, if you're going to talk about your own skill, if you're going to place that in the context of people you admire more than yourself, that's usually a good way to, to get around it. Yeah, with the whole, like, idea of, like, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That's kind yeah. of the vibe I got. It's not that he's, like, self-deprecating. He just, like, is yeah. thinking about, mm, I'm reading this interesting good novel right now. I yeah. like it. Which is what I actually really love about on writing um, is because it's part memoir. It's a memoir of the craft. And it's part of his own story. He's just so snarky and clean with his writing. Like, not clean, just, he's, like, he writes just, like, 
yeah crankily almost and it's kind of fun to read a little bit because he just has no patience for nonsense and i i don't know i got a kick out of listening to his audiobook because he was read by him and it's just it's just fun so that's i don't know I'll, I'll do that later but yeah that's me going deeper greek uh plumber kostenberg and merkel um it's a greek textbook it had a lot of writing in it and it was a tome but uh it's good i enjoy it this is actually something i will reference back to because the a lot of the introductions to like teaching grammar just like walked through different interesting aspects of how greek actually tangibly applies to whether it's preaching or textual interpretation or something like that and then there's also parts where it like goes through and carefully walks the grammatical stuff of um passages like romans or like the gospels and stuff like that so we already translated and read through all all of that for class but i think i'll actually refer back to it in the future <laughs> yeah um, my next one is brent ben franklin i talked about this enough uh owen you go for it um my next one is also uh autobiographical it is surprised by joy by c.s hey, lewis um which i had never read before really yeah and i'm so glad i read it it's fantastic um and i'd be interested in your your thoughts on this guys i read it loved it just another book where you're just horrified by the way the private schools, like the boarding schools were for boys just like what a remarkably inappropriate culture anyway like from a parenting and avoiding abuse perspective right but having finished it i was like i want to write a memoir type book marking like the first 30 years of my life and it sounds like massively egotistical i wouldn't try to sell it or anything like that just for an exercise for myself because he's reflecting on how i became who i am today and as i'm reading i'm like that's a really interesting reflection dude i I could not recommend that more my grandfather i I don't know if i read it this year maybe i should have put it in the first podcast but my grandfather wrote a very short memoir of his childhood memories what a special project oh man like and I don't think everybody in the entire world, it's, it is actually quite well written and good stories, but I wouldn't say that it's like a New York Times bestseller, but it's, it's, it's like, for us, it's so special. And I think if I could read a book from like my great, great grandfather or something like that, and, and, and hear about their stories of sort of an, most biographies you read are of not very ordinary people right? They like did something kind of crazy and maybe they had an ordinary childhood, but just reading like an ordinary Dutch immigrants story. It's just like, wow. So please do. I will read it. Your great grandchildren will read it. Yeah. Maybe maybe you you might not like, what if I'm like super revealing it? And I'm, I'm oh, just like, you, and you're like, you can't read it. You can't read it because it's too private. Well, then just well, then just journal. Because yeah, then, 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 then I have yeah, a like, memoir <laughs> that people aren't reading. It's called the journal, bro. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that that's a fair that's a fair push. Um, but no, yeah, just the idea of like actually like sitting down to like write about my memories and and how I was. Yeah, shaped. yeah, it just seems like an interesting exercise. Totally think more people should do it. Yeah. You know, Little House on the Prairie uh, by Laura Ingalls Wilder is interesting, right? She did nothing remarkable. She just recounted what life was like. Yes. And they were wildly compelling. And I feel like she might have had a moment where it was like, I'm literally just going to tell the story that all of us had as kids. This is really stupid. But for whatever reason, she persevered. Maybe she, because she, I don't know why. But generations probably at her time and then since have just loved her stories, right? <clears throat> totally. Uh, now, I, I have a different perspective because what I told you is don't do it now. Wait till you're 
older and then sell it because I like you think you do well. Your life's interesting. I think I would read. Yeah, it. that's why memoirs and biographies are different, though, right? And then they're both awesome. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I I've thought about this a bunch too. Um, I've journaled about every single day of my life since 2014, and I have like <laughs> getting close to a million words worth of journals at this point, which is hilarious. So if I were to ever write a biography, which would not be something worth considering for at least five decades, it would be uh, it'd be interesting to comb because I could comb through and have wildly accurate accounts of what I did with my time during basically ever since I was like 15. That's really cool. It'd be interesting. It'd be something. Is that, that yours? Uh, let's see here. What If by Randall Monroe. <laughs> I was like, I think I was in the middle of some, some heady stuff, some school books, I forget. I was like, I just need a stupid book. And this book is incredibly stupid, and I love it. It's also ingenious, though. <clears throat> oh, Sorry, it's, what's it called? What If by Randall Monroe. Oh, it's yes. It's the okay. best. He just goes through all of... Okay, it's like, what if you made a jetpack out of guns? And he just goes through all the ballistic coefficient problems. <laughs> Of what, 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 okay, what kind of guns can you use? How many guns would you need to do? How many, how much ammo would you need in order to sustain thrust, but also have ammo like go down at the same time? It's just because you'd lose weight as you'd dispel the cartridges. So it was just like, it was so fascinating, man. What happens if you threw a baseball at 90% the speed of light? And he starts talking, he goes nanosecond by nanosecond about like turning the atoms of air in front of the ball into plasma and the superheated plasma would ex would like expand at this rate. So he's like, yeah, the ball would hit the pitcher, killing him. If that didn't, about four microseconds later, the superheated plasma would obliterate the pitcher. And he's like, and then he starts talking about how most of downtown New York would have been like nuked by the fireball that would come from that. Like just... Just like, it's so stupid. Or what if a 10 foot by 10 foot hole appeared at the lowest point in the ocean and slowly drained it? And then he has like these weird little, um, like, because he's almost very, he's very factual and, but snarky at the same time. And then he's just this random aside about Holland taking over the world. And he just kind of maps the route Holland's would, Holland would take as it just conquered, or sorry, the Netherlands would take as it just conquered everything. It's just, it's a very ridiculous book and it's very funny. And I just, it, I like it. It sounds like. I mean, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it sounds like something that would be a good, I, I don't even have any books like this, but a good ba bathroom reader. Yeah. Like, you know how people have those? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. He's actually a, like a, a NASA scientist, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does he have any really dumb ones? Cause there's some really, there's, there are some fun dumb ones that I've seen on YouTube where it's like incredibly dumb. Where it's like, how many lines would it take to beat the sun in a fight? Like, like so stupid that it's like, where do I even start with that? But I think his are about his are about three degrees more plausible. Than yeah, that. I know. Yeah, or but one of his one is like, I guess, what would happen if you had a mole of moles? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> and a mole is like, like a, are we talking moles in your body or moles the animal? No, 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 moles the animal, but a mole is like, I don't know, like seventeen sextillion or something like that, like some stupid, 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 stupid high, impossibly to understand number. And he basically just goes, what would happen if you and randomly in space just poofed a moles of moles? And what would happen? Like, it's just, it's so gross. The gravitational pull of all the moles would bring them all into a giant soup. And then I, I don't even, it's, yeah. So what I want to know is, did he like do a, a Reddit 
era and be like submit these to me or did yeah, he yeah, yeah, think yeah, yeah. of all these himself no he had a website that people would submit okay these great to. i love that so he's the he's the artist and author of the webcomic xkcd oh okay yeah i've seen that once or twice yeah. cool great yeah uh jermichael ducked out so i guess you want to skip to me um so my next book was uh sorry why does god care who i sleep with by sam albury um yeah this was a good this was a good one um it wasn't quite what i was expecting i think because i knew his work so for anyone who's not familiar with sam albury he's a same-sex attracted fella who has chosen a life of celibacy that's not like his entire thing but that's he talks about that quite a bit and so i think i thought maybe this was going to be sort of an exploration of like how do we approach homosexuality in the Bible? It really wasn't that it was really like, uh, if we're talking about sort of subtractive versus like additive arguments, he was not out here really critiquing anything. He was sort of starting from the ground up of like, let's talk about what God's design for sexuality is and build up a beautiful picture of that. And then as we go along, there are going to be some things that he prohibits because they don't fit this beautiful painting of sexuality. He has, um, really, really beautiful. Like I, I, I learned, uh, and it was it was quite beautiful, but I, it wasn't quite what I was expecting it to be, and that's okay. Um, I think there's other books to read if you want to learn about that. Cool. All right. Uh, my next book is, well, you know, I'll do two. I got The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs. This was a, a Puritan writer, um, and it's just a really beautiful little, it's quite short, a little book of reflections on um, God's nature and presence for people who are struggling and who are feeling weak. Uh, and it's just it's just another one of those Puritan books where you, you know, we have our sort of our 20th and 21st century conception of Puritans as being these kind of difficult, tough love type people in terms of their thinking. And it's just another example of an incredibly compassionate and empathetic uh, Puritan writer who writes this incredibly accessible and beautiful book of reflections on God's, um, God's, presence in weakness um the other one that i'm grouping here uh is meditations by marcus aurelius um which i mean i listened to the audiobook and there were bits that i was like oh yeah that's great and then it's another one of those books where he has a lot of concepts that uh, ideas and notions that he's thinking about that just kind of runs together where you clearly are supposed to stop and meditate on these things individually. It's called meditations. So like just reading through it kind of quickly leaves you feeling like you got nothing left to hold. Like you, you just didn't do anything for you. But I can look at it and go, no, if I actually stopped and maybe I read one of his meditations every day and kind of thought about that, this would be a much more interesting read. I, I also read meditations this year and same sort of feeling, but also kind of like i bet you these were really sophisticated ideas in some ways for your time but now like the rational animal i don't know it's just like i'm too far off from just not agreeing with you on any of these things that i almost like yeah i struggled to interest me yeah i i i felt a little bit of that too although i would say that the uh um the 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 one moment where he's talking about how hard it is to get out of bed in the morning super super relatable yeah. yes <laughs> with i think i can totally agree with because i read meditations a while back and it was like okay 
you know it's like that's that's a lot and you're kind of but i almost wonder though if you just like audiobooked the entire book of proverbs in one shot i feel like you'd probably also be like yeah, okay and that you have to really chew on them for a bit in order to kind of have that flush out like they're not they don't spell out life application very well maybe that's sacrilegious to say but uh i i think i agree with that proverbs um the art of war by sun Tzu, meditations by marcus aurelius um the analects by, by confucius all of these books that are written in this sort of format of like here's some wisdom here's something i've been thinking about here's an idea but really like ratatat i think you gotta slow down on all of those to, to even if you at the end of the day you're like eh, and you had nothing to offer me at least you kind of gave them the the appropriate amount of attention as was intended the, the major difference though for me would obviously is i agree with uh proverbs immediately sure. even if i was listening yeah, to yeah, it really yeah. quickly whereas like I just disagree with so much of the base level of these other wisdom things. So. That's, fair. That's fair. But I think the reason you would still want to sit with it maybe is like to think about why you disagree with it. Again, maybe it's so off that it's just not even worth your time. I don't know. But yeah, cool. Sure. Um, I'll just go and then Michael, we just skipped you. That's, that's chill. Howl's Moving Castle, uh, Diana Wynne-Jones. Have you read this? No, my sister's a huge fan, though. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I, have a, I have a good friend at Southern who... Um, who she's she's really cool if she's like actually thinks you should read a book she'll track it down and give it to you and it's just kind of a cool i don't know and so she gave it to me she's like hey i think you'd enjoy reading this it's a kid's book i feel like you get a kick out of it i'm like cool so i just threw it in my backpack and then just read it a bunch of times often in the hot tub uh, at southern which is always a joy and so it was it was really good it's uh it's like old british writing so she's from like it was written in the 80s and it's just this whimsical weird fairy tale that like inters it's it's odd because it like there's so many things left unexplained like somehow it kind of intersects with the real world but it also doesn't it's also a very fair fairy tale land and it's just this cast of very quirky weird characters and it's just it's it's just got some fun things there's like a demon that controls a house but the demon's kind of cranky and like like obviously evil but not like you know just evil and then and turns out it's actually kind of a decent it's just it's a fairy tale it's very ridiculous i just enjoyed it i found it charming and kind of a lot of weird british slang and then weird uh fairy tale references so there's little like um wizard of oz references plugged in here and there and, and just it's it's just an it's a book where the narrator i think is winking at you a few times too and so i, I enjoyed it it was good Anne of avonlea lucy maud montgomery really enjoyed this as well kind of talked about it before so i'll just lump in the next one uh, Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. Again? Again, yes. This is like the fourth time you've read it. Many you really are a glutton for punishment, eh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say, I had a slightly different perspective on it this time round. Fourth fourth go round. I know we've talked about this like many times. The difference is, I talked about it in a weekly Young Men's Bible Stay where we literally took like one bullet point at a time uh, per chapter. And it's i guess the one thing that i i don't know on so i want to like neutralize the position i made before my biggest critique of this book has been that it's not winsome to the person that he's trying to write to which is rebellious young men and i was thinking about it and i was like i actually don't know how would i write to a rebellious young man who doesn't care at all who doesn't think deeply who 
yeah, well, whatever is maybe a party or like all these different things. And sure, I can think up a few things, but I also was just reminded is like, yeah, I want to be hesitant in critiquing an older man and older writer who for all intents and purposes, I deeply, I would respect a lot of his other writing and ministry. If he thinks that's the best way to write to that category of people. So I still have all the same reservations I had before, but it also did foster really good discussion inside this young men's discussion group. So I don't know, I guess I like, I still have a lot of the same things that I uh, felt before, but I, enjoyed it a little bit more cool okay uh my next book was short stories and tall tales by justin ross shout out to my friend justin ross who i've co-written some music with um sorry i'll just turn my chair so that i'm speaking more directly into the mic yeah this was a really fun book. As you can tell, it's a collection of his short stories and they're just super whimsical. Like it's not a kid's book, but it definitely, it, it reminds you of what it's like reading fairy tales. And a lot of them are even just um, definitely like silly, almost what if ideas. Like for instance, one of them's like, hmm, why do they tell us not to run with scissors? So then a kid decides to try running with scissors and then he accidentally cuts open the space time continuum and that's what happens and it opens up this black hole and you know, there's, I love that so yeah, much. it's, it's really, it's really fun. My, my only critique of this book, Justin, if you're listening, which I think I've already told him this, but, um, is that some of the stories, uh, I felt like I, I can't, like that one in particular and a few other ones, some of these are legit short stories. And then some of them are almost just like two or three pages of kind of an idea. And I would have actually loved to see that one developed. And I kind of was, some of them I was sad where it would be like, Whoa, this is an amazing premise. And then it would just end. And so that's, that's my only thing is that I want more Justin. Um, but also shout out to this book for kind of like inspiring me and also just some of his kind of encouraging words that like, oh, you can just write a book if you want to. So, or, or you can just write a short story if you want to try. So I did. And that's my next book is The Gargoyle by Jesse Boat. And man, I just can't recommend this book enough. It's <laughs> definitely the top book I read this year. It's a masterpiece and will doubtless go down as one of the classics. No. <laughs> no, I, 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 you, guys, you guys might not say it right. No, just kidding. <laughs> Feel free to give your thoughts if you have them. All right, that's my book. I had a privilege of, of reading that before its release. Ooh. Yeah. I, I felt super privileged by that privilege. Um, yeah, very charming, very charming story. Um, and there's a, an audio form that you can enjoy. I feel like you forgot to put that in the pitch there. All right. There's also a podcast where you talk about the uh, audiobook. For... <laughs> and also a backstory on Instagram of the of the short story. There are lots of gargoyle-related resources for those who are interested. Thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz. It's immensely helpful. I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at It's the Volk. Have a good one, guys.